Hi, everyone. I'm Cindy Mooring, the founder and executive chair of the Business Integrity Leadership Initiative at the Sam M. Walton College of Business. And this is The Biz, the Business Integrity School podcast. Here, we talk about applying ethics, integrity, and courageous leadership in business, education, and most importantly, your life today. I've had nearly 30 years of real world experience as a senior executive. So if you're looking for practical tips from a business pro who's been there, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome, let's get started. Season four of the Business Integrity School is sponsored by J.B. Hunt Transport Services, Inc. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Biz, the Business Integrity School. And it is my great pleasure to introduce to you today, Matt Friedman. Hi, Matt. How are you? Oh, hi. How are you doing today? Doing great. I'm good. I'm good. 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 Um, let me just tell everybody a little bit about you, Matt, and then we will dive into the conversation. And we are just so excited to have you here as a guest. I'll start by just telling all of you that Matt is in Hong Kong. So it is morning for him and evening for me. And we are just uh, really grateful for him to be able to spend a little bit of time for us. And it's one of the things that quite frankly, I like about COVID, the fact that we have more accessibility to people that we didn't before. So let me tell you about Matt. Matt is an international human trafficking expert with almost 30 years of experience as a manager, a program designer, an evaluator, and a frontline responder. He currently serves as the chief executive officer of the Mekong Club. It's a consortium of Hong Kong-based private sector business leaders who have pledged to help fight human trafficking in Asia, and we're going to hear more about that. From 2006 to 2012, Matt was the regional project manager for the United Nations Interagency Project on Human Trafficking in Thailand, which is an interagency coordinating body that linked the United Nations system with governments and civil society groups in China, Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Thailand, and Vietnam. And prior to that, Matt worked with the United States Agency for International Development in Thailand, Thailand, Bangladesh, and Nepal, and did a fair amount of work there as well, also working on, on human trafficking uh, matters. He is uh, offers regular technical advice to numerous governments um, that are working to, st- to stop modern-day slavery, and he is frequently cited in such world news media as CNN, TVB, BBC, Bloomberg, the New York Times, IHT, and others on issues related to human trafficking and slavery. And he speaks at major conferences around the world. And he's the author of 10 published books on subjects ranging from human trafficking to the ancient art of Bangladesh metal casting. So Matt, welcome. That is, uh, you have an amazing background and credentials, but before we get into the actual topic, tell us what is Bangladesh metal casting? Uh, Basically, I lived in Bangladesh for five years, and during the time that I was there, I came in contact with villages that make statues, basically using a a method that is 2,000 years old. It was dying out, and I basically helped them to publicize it so that they could uh, expand their business to what it was before. So it's just one of those things that you kind of stumble across and then uh, uh, get get excited about and then promote, and that's what I did there. 
Wow. 2000 years old. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. And I thought my great grandmother doing tatting. I don't know if you're familiar with what that is. Yeah. (laughs) She was born in 1900 and taught me how to tat. I would have to have to work a little bit. I thought that was an old art. So Mm -hmm. very interesting. Well, tell us all, if you don't mind, Matt, how did you get into the um, human rights area and human trafficking in particular. I know I read it in your bio, but can you just add a little bit of color there about your experience and kind of what led you to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I got into it uh, very accidental. I was uh, a public health officer living and working in Nepal, and I was supposed to be looking at the HIV AIDS portfolio. At that time, we were finding girls 12, 13 years old who were HIV positive, couldn't understand what was going on. That's a very conservative culture. So we went out to interview the girls and heard pretty much the same story over and over again. A trafficker would come into a community, uh, flash a bunch of money around and basically say, I'm looking for a wife. Don't want an urban wife, want a village wife. You'd find a girl 12, 13 years old, befriend her, and then go to the family and say, I want to marry your daughter. They're thinking, wow, he's rich, he's handsome, going to take care of our daughter, going to take care of us. A couple of days later, they actually get married. After that, he goes to the family and says, I'm going to take your daughter to Kathmandu, the capital. Don't worry, I'll be back in three months. But that wasn't what was going to happen. Instead, he would take her to Mumbai, India, to the red light district. He'd put her in a room and say, honey, stay here. I'll be back in a few minutes. As she was walking in, she saw all these people milling around. She said, no, 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 don't leave me. I'm scared. He says, it's okay, you just stay here. He then goes to the madam to get the $500 for having solar to the brothel. He gets the gold from the wedding and he hands the wedding pictures over. He then leaves to go back to Nepal to do this again and again, maybe 40, 50 times in a year. The madam then goes into the room where the girl is and says, guess what? Your husband just sold you to me. You're gonna be with 20 guys a day every day. You can imagine her shock. No, 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 my husband loves me. No, that's what happened. When she comes to internalize this, many of the girls say, I'll kill myself before I do those shameful things. The madam then takes out the photograph of the wedding and says, is this your mom, your dad, your brother? If you hurt yourself, we'll hurt them. Make her into a prostitute, it's quite simple. You bring in a couple of professional rapists, you rape this girl 20, 30 times, so she eventually just lays back and accepts what happens to her, and she's put on the line where she'll be with 20 guys a day for a couple of years until she's depleted spiritually, emotionally, physically, oh, yeah. and they throw her out onto the street. So I was seeing this over and over again, but I really didn't cross over the line until I actually went to those brothels. The Indian, Indian government invited me to do public health checks, but a police officer with me went into one of the brothels. There was an 11 year old trafficking girl, a victim. This girl saw me, saw an opportunity, literally ran up, wrapped herself around me and said, save me, save me. They're doing terrible things to me. I looked down at this child who was wearing a dress 20 sizes too big because she was a child in an adult's world. She was hysterically crying, turned to the police officer and said, we need to get her out of here. He said, we can't do that. What are you talking about? You're a cop. He says, well, if we try to leave, they'll kill us both. Make a long story short, left, came back with a lot more police, but of course she was gone. Now I tell that story because I wasn't one of those 15 year olds that said, when I grow up, I wanna do human rights work. (laughs) This particular test in my life had such a devastating impact on me. I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, that I did what a a lot of activists eventually do, surrender to the fact that now that I know about this, this is what I'm gonna do with my life. And 30 years later, here I am talking to you. Yeah. What a, what a, just a gut-wrenching story. And, and I think a, a common misconception 
is that when you talk about modern day slavery or human trafficking, that people think that it's just the sex trafficking trade, where in, in actuality, that's only about 25% is it? 25% of it, as I understand it, it's really about 75% of it that is actually forced labor and that about 60% of that exists in some of the supply chains, right? From, from global That's companies. Exactly so true. you got exactly into it in your eyes. Yeah. So, so Matt, let's, um, let's take it to that, to almost the, the, the higher level as well, and talk mm -hmm. about a lot of those social issues. And, okay. and for those of us who are fortunate to, to get the chance to hear from you directly uh, on campus, we'll, we'll talk a lot more about the specific human trafficking. But before we leave that, that issue, just tell the audience here and remind them how many, how many people do you believe are actually in slavery today? Well, the uh, official number that's being used now is about 40 million. Of that, 15 million of them would be what's called forced marriage, where a person is forced into a marriage not to have a marital type situation, but basically to work for the family. The rest uh -huh. of them, 25 million, would be what's described as forced labor, as you indicated. Uh, about 25% of that, uh, sex trafficking, 75% would be uh, associated with supply chains. And then as a, as a a part of that, you would find that there's manufacturing, fishing, domestic help, and so forth. So we're talking about a lot of people. In fact, 9.2 million people enter per year, about 25,200 per day, or new slave every four seconds. So we're talking about a huge number of people who are in this situation. Profits generated from this, about 150 billion US dollars a year. But the important point is with all of the United Nations governments and NGOs collectively working together, we're only helping about 0.2% of the victims, not even a half percent. Wow. And this is part of the reason why the private sector has been brought in. Yeah. Because the association with supply chains is so relevant to this process, they have to be part of the solution. All right. So let's let's zoom out then and put that issue in context of what's going on sort of in corporate America today. And the 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 big issues around ESG and not just reporting out on it, but turning it into part of a company's strategy, and mm -hmm. uh, making sure that it is actually kind of relevant to to what the company's doing today, and that they're focusing on all things related to environmental, social, and governance. That's a lot of territory to cover. I mean, quite mm -hmm. for, let's let let's be clear. That's yeah. a lot, and I find in. Uh, a lot of the literature right now that there's a tremendous amount of focus on climate change, as there should be, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's been a tremendous amount of focus on the governance issues as well, um, you know, board makeup and what is the board overseeing and those kinds of things. Um, but the social issues, uh, I don't know, are getting quite as much play, but what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, basically it's the orphan among the three. It's something that uh, people have given lip service until recently, partly because they didn't really know what to do with this. They didn't look at the S as being something that could be easily measured or was uh, relevant to what it was that uh, companies needed to be measured on. Uh, and so, you know, I, I would attend conferences even five years ago where people would talk about the day when the S will eventually be articulated. And this went on and on and on and on until recently. Now we're beginning to see, and I think it's partly post-COVID, that if you are going to measure the effectiveness of companies in terms of their relationship between themselves and the world or communities or workers, you have to be able to measure every aspect of that. 
So yeah. the, the E has been measured for years. You have very sophisticated metrics that look at carbon footprints that are able to measure carbon output and so forth. Governance has been in place, but the S has, has not been. And it's just been in a, just in the last three or four months that we begin to see a significant change in the direction of this being considered just as important as some of the other aspects. So do you think, so I, so obviously there are some, you know, very large multinational companies that, that have been, I would say, measuring and tracking and, 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 and trying to improve their supply chains for years. Are you, when you say that it's only really picked up steam in the more recently, are you speaking to like sort of companies of all sizes? Are you talking about it catching the attention of the investment community or what do you, what do you, what do you think there? Well, just to give an example, I was in Canada and I was doing a series of presentations to the general public. And I had a bunch of teachers come up to me afterwards and say, how do we know that the investments that we have for our retirement fund aren't supporting modern slavery? We can measure that from the standpoint of how much pollution or global warming companies have. Mm. And we can see it from the standpoint of whether or not companies treat their employees well, but we don't know this about the yes. So what's gradually happened over time, and a lot of it has to do with the millennials who kind of really do care about the products that they buy, yeah, the question comes much. up on a regular basis. So the investors were uh, caught between a rock and a hard place. They knew that it was important, but they didn't know what to do. And so they started to come to organizations like ours to ask the question, how do we do our due diligence in order to ensure that the organizations we're investing in aren't basically hurting people? Yeah. And so this gradual process uh, continued up until COVID. And when COVID hit, all of a sudden people are sitting at home, they're quarantined, and they're spending more time thinking about, you know, when I buy products, uh, are those products uh, helping? Are they contributing? Are they making the world a better place? And so it used to be that companies had three major motivations, profit, growth, and prestige. Another one has been added, which is whether or not a company is doing good for the world. Now, this is a topic that is here. It's expanding. It's becoming a lot more relevant than it had been in the past, and it's not going away. This yeah. is something that is really going to, over time, be a force of nature because what's happening in a lot of countries is even the regulators are looking at this. Mm -hmm. So you can't greenwash things by saying, I do a self-assessment and I'm doing all of these things without somebody eventually coming and saying, well, are you sure you're really doing those things? Right. If you say you're doing them, you better be doing them. And right. so regulations will be put in place in Europe, the United States and so place. So basically ESG is going to become the metric for measuring whether or not companies are doing the right thing. Yeah, whether they're actually doing the right thing. It's so interesting. I do get the sense that COVID sped that whole process up quite a bit and, and I think you've already answered one of the questions I was going to ask you, but I do get the sense that you you believe it's it's here to stay. It's it's not here at the moment, but will fade over time. You do do you do you think it was that COVID was the tipping point, or could you I pinpoint it, it? Yeah, I do. I do think it was, and I think you have to understand that this trend started back in the '70s when you know there was so much emphasis on pollution and companies were being called out, and then. So corporate social responsibility became the first incarnation of this. This is the, the next incarnation. Ah, uh, that's very interesting, though, that you describe it that way. So so I I, I think some people would, would don't even necessarily understand CSR, corporate social responsibility, and how 
that may be different. Is it even different than ESG? So in your mind, you think this is the next iteration. Help us, help me in the audience kind of understand how you see the difference. Okay, so there was a time that about 25 years ago where people were saying companies have to be more responsible. So they developed what were called corporate social responsibility offices. And in there, they had people who were staffed to basically identify a way of showing to the world that this company is good. But there, it kind of went off in the wrong direction. Instead of the company looking at its relationship with the world, they would come up with, we're supporting education projects. We're supporting disability projects. We are basically doing this community run that helps things. And so because we're doing these things, we're good. Okay, judge is good. That, that's, we don't have to talk about these other things because we have this portfolio of things that contributes to the world. I so see. to a certain extent, they were able to get off the hook because they would say, this is our goodness, not we are basically uh, into engaging in the world in a way that, that adds value. What has happened with ESG, when people looked at corporate social responsibility wasn't reflecting whether a company was really good in terms of its uh, nexus between communities or the planet or biodiversity, all these other things. They said, you have to measure those things. Yeah. So what ESG does is allows for the first time for there to be an objective way of measuring everybody using the same potential yardstick so that you can determine who's on the naughty or the nice list. Yeah, so it's become more mainstream, in your opinion, and tied directly, if you will, to the business of a company, not something that may be sitting over here on the side that they can say, oh, look, here's here's what we're doing to, to try to show that we're a responsible citizen. It's, it's, it's changed. It's become part of, I would say, the fabric, if you will, of what a company does just as much as the bottom line that it creates from, you know, the, the, the types of products or services that it sells. So their impact has to be tied directly to that, not something over on the side, if I'm understanding you right. Very interesting. So now you mentioned a consistent yardstick to compare companies by, but yet it seems to me there are a number of different almost rating agencies or bodies out there right now, and that we don't have a consistent standard. What do you, tell me what your thoughts are on that and how far away do you think we are from having a consistent yardstick. So I think ultimately what might happen is you may have these different, what are called standard holders, these organizations that have indicators. But what I'm hoping happens is you have a certain percentage of E and S and G that everyone has to measure the same way. Mm. So maybe you can have some variation and you can go into more detail, but you really want there to be one standard that people follow. And because the, the legal system wants to kind of get involved and regulate this, I think yeah. we're moving in that particular direction. So mm-hmm. let's talk about um, the Mekong Club uh, that you that you founded and that you still lead today in Southeast Asia. Um, tell us a little bit about that organization and who's a member of it and what, what, what is it all about? What are they trying to do? What are you trying to do by leading that organization? Well, the genesis of this goes back to when I was working for the United Nations. Uh, we had a meeting one day where we were looking at the statistics. At that time, the number was 21 million people. And we knew that the world was helping 34,000. When you put those two together, again, at 0.2% of the victims yeah. being helped. It was a very sobering moment. And when we yes. realized that, we said, let's go back to the numbers and figure out what we need to do in order to have more impact. So again, we looked at 75% of the forced laborers 
uh, of modern slavery is forced labor, 60% right. associated with supply chain. So yep. I started to fly up to Hong Kong to talk to business leaders. And because I was a UN person, they would take the call. What we learned was many of them knew about the issue or didn't know about the issue. They immediately recognized the business risks, but they didn't want to have a conversation with somebody like me because I came from that naming and shaming world. So we had enough of these trips and eventually organizations within the private sector said, listen, we need an organization to help us to understand what we need to know about modern slavery. Can you set something up? So we set up the Macon Club. We called it that because it doesn't mean anything. If we said anti this or human rights that, it would scare the private sector away. So for a couple of years, we did presentations to C-suite, to the directors and help sensitize people. But at the same time, things were changing. We were seeing legislation coming in, transparency legislation that basically forced companies to put on their website what they're doing to address modern slavery. So they had to all of a sudden learn about this. We were seeing naming and shaming and lawsuits that were basically creating reputational risk for companies. We were seeing a significant increase in media coverage. And then ESG, as we talked about, was beginning to emerge as a force of nature. As a result of this, we morphed into a, an association. Mm. So as part of our association, we work with banks, manufacturers, retailers, the hospitality sector, and we help them to understand in a positive, supportive way what they need to know in order to address the issue. And then based on these discussions, we have them tell us what they need to protect themselves, whether it's training, whether it's some type of a, an app, whether it's an analysis, and so we develop tools. So what we do is we engage with them, we collect their feedback, they tell us what they need, we build these things, and then we give them back to the community. And as a result of this process, we're able to help them to protect their business. So certain businesses initially start off by doing this because they wanna protect themselves. But over time, some of them internalize the fact that, wow, what we're doing really does potentially help people. That's kind of a cool thing. And some of them go on to be even leaders when it comes to addressing the issue. That's fantastic. You know, and you mentioned the tools and you mentioned technology a bit. And I, I think some of what uh, the Mekong Club is, is doing there is uh, really, really groundbreaking. I mean, you're using blockchain in a certain way and a couple other technologies. Can you can you talk about that for a minute, how technology can be used by companies to help solve this issue and also the app that you mentioned? Yeah, uh, just to give an example. So one of the big issues that uh, results in modern slavery would be a worker that comes from one country ends up in a factory in another country and then they get exploited. But when auditors go into the factory to audit the company, because they don't speak the language, they can't communicate with those workers. And so, so it's a great disadvantage. And so the way the app works, and I don't have it on this phone, but what you would have would be flags of uh, countries that would be listed on the front. The auditor goes up to the worker and gets them to press the flag from where they come from. And then with headphones on in their language, the audio would say, we're gonna ask you some questions. If the answer to the question is yes, press green. Uh, if it's no, press red. And then you ask a bunch of questions. Some of them are health and safety to just kind of not let them know what the topic is. But some of the questions would be, do you have debt from prior to coming here? 
Are you able to uh, say no to overtime? Do you have your passport and your uh, identification information? So by asking these questions, you can determine from the most vulnerable people the extent to their vulnerability. That's so right. this has helped to significantly increase you know, victim identification because for the first time, auditors are really able to talk to the people they need to talk to. It's a very simple tool. The blockchain technology basically allows for us to take information related to migrants, put it into a blockchain format that is immutable, yeah. can't be changed, right. so that when the auditors come in, they can see the information uh, in, a, in a form that hasn't been adjusted. They can yeah. then compare that with the employees. And so I, I suspect you're going to see more and more of this type of technology being used in order to uh, to really help the private sector to to protect their business from there being exploitation in it. So, so the Mekong Club recently uh, partnered with some other organizations, Thompson Reuters Foundation, Refinitive, White and Case, and actually released a whole white paper that addressed how do we amplify the S and ESG, going back to what we were talking about just a little bit earlier. Um, and there were some investor myths and that you busted in this in this in this paper so what do you think um, some of the most common myths are that were reported on in that paper and what can the audience sort of learn from what was written in that white paper can you share a few of those those with us okay so one of them would be social performance is less material than what you would have with the e and the g Difficult to know how to assess uh, social performance, uh, hard to measure the S, qualitative is best, not quantitative, only relevant for impact investors. All of those are statements that are said on a regular basis. But the right. truth is that there's a lot of data re related to the S that's available. If you collect that data and analyze it, you could really make a determination as to whether or not uh, there are issues and problems. Um, so, so what we tried to do is to take the, the statements that we hear over and over again and, and then research whether or not there's any validity. And we came to realize that out of the things that I just mentioned, all of them can be busted. Mm -hmm. You know, we can measure it. Uh, mm -hmm. We can uh, use this for the determination as to whether or not there are problems related to the S, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. And technology that you just we just talked about, that's going to make it even easier to measure, I would think, in many respects. A lot of that will be. It certainly will. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, see, the thing is, is if you want to measure something, um, you can. You just have to have the will to do it. And I think yeah. part of the problem is that there wasn't the will. But yeah. there is so much pressure now from consumers wanting yeah. to know that the companies that they are uh, potentially investing in or buying from buying are from. Right. Uh, appropriate that uh, you're going to see that the ESG will just, as we talked about earlier, rise to the top of the list. Yeah, and I really, force. yeah, I, I do sense that the, the the kind of the drumbeat around the issue is coming from both sides. It's the consumer side, which I do get the sense that COVID really uh, fueled that fire a bit, as you mentioned, we were all sitting at home, but similarly on the investor side, because that's when you started seeing the uh, shareholder letters from Larry Fink at BlackRock and others kind of come out. It all kind of coalesced around this tipping point moment, if you will, around social justice and 
you know, George Floyd's death and, and um, the corporate social responsibility business roundtable statement about stakeholder theory. And it kind of became, you know, it, it all just has like reached a crescendo, if you will. Exactly. Um, and That's we can't have the S, you can't have the S be left behind. Um, fair amount of tension, like we said on the environment, but they all need to have equal billing. So tell us a little bit more about what you think um, about some of the biggest risks that companies are actually facing right now uh, when it comes to ESG, how to balance all of those. And what are some of the misconceptions do you think about your work with private companies sometimes when you talk about it? Is it still really the name and, and shame approach or is it something different these days? I think the biggest risk is just a lack of general awareness about what the issue of modern slavery is. Uh, each year I do road trips. I, I haven't been able to do it because of COVID, but we right. did it across Australia and New Zealand and Singapore and Canada, the United States. And I'm astounded at how low uh, the general awareness is related to this particular topic. People have mm. misconceptions, as you say, they think about this as sex trafficking. They don't understand the relevance of forced labor. And if you're in North America, you're thinking, well, this is very far away. Yeah. Even though, I mean, it, it really isn't because it's, uh, you know, it's estimated 700,000 people in modern slavery in the United States alone. Seven, let's just stop there for a minute. 700,000 in the 700, US is what it's estimated. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. a lot. So that includes sex trafficking. It includes domestic helpers. It includes a lot of the people who pick our tomatoes and our oranges yeah. and do the dirty work that nobody wants to do. These are people who got into the country, they're under the radar, and they're just being exploited. So, you know, I mean, they think, well, it happens in Bangladesh and Thailand, but it wouldn't happen here. They're right. really shocked and surprised when they hear that. The other thing is, is, uh, you know, in manufacturing, you have often three tiers, you know, the, the assembly tier, tier one, you have where the, let's say it's a running shoe, where the rivets and the shoelaces and the uh, zippers and everything tier two and tier three would let's say be the raw material the metal the cotton the rubber most companies have been auditing tier one for 25 years you really don't find many issues at that level but there's never been an expectation to go down below that mm -hmm. but with the new legislation the expectation is you have to go all the way down to the lowest level of your supply chain let's say that you were auditing 1400 companies tier ones and all of a sudden you're now told you have to do tier two and three that's five, six, seven thousand companies that have to be audited. Yeah. That's a problem. Who's going to pay for that? Right. How is that going to be done? So yeah. all of a sudden, manufacturers are really beginning to kind of question what are we going to do in order to uh, achieve this expectation that has tremendous expense associated with it? One yeah. of the things we're seeing are companies are sharing audit information. So instead of all the companies that are using that zipper company auditing it, one company audits zippers, somebody else does shoelace, somebody else does rivets. So you're gonna see some significant changes in the way corporations basically work together to ensure that the companies that they work with aren't uh, adding, uh, contributing to any kind of exploitation of workers. Yeah. So do you have any positive success stories that, that you can talk about through some of the work that the Mekong group has done with our club, I'm sorry, has done with um, any companies? Well, I mean, you, what happened in Hong Kong is a lot of the uh, organizations that were here were tired of hearing over and over again that uh, people in Hong Kong don't care about uh, anything but profit. And they would use slave labor in order to, to have shareholder profits and so forth. 
And so, you know, many of the people that I work with really did care or do, do care about the world and they do really try to put systems and procedures in right. place to, to help. And so they finally said, that we're gonna put a pledge up that demonstrates our commitment to addressing this. And so as part of the pledge, they came up with a statement and it basically says we, the collective community, uh, have a zero tolerance associated with this and we think it's reprehensible and we're gonna do everything we can to address it. This was a, a spontaneous uh, outcome of uh, one of our association meetings. And it demonstrates that the private sector uh, on a very, very sensitive issue decided that they wanted to have a public stand. That's one thing. Other thing is, is that as companies come to realize the, the vulnerability of this, as I mentioned, initially they do this from a standpoint of protecting their company. Mm -hmm. but many people have gone one step, two steps further to beginning to join the, the panel and the conference circuits to talk about the relevance and the importance of addressing this issue, not just from the business risk standpoint, but because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. So, yeah. I, I, you know, there's there's been a, a fair amount of resistance. Don't talk about something that is overly sensitive, but we're seeing that companies are doing it because they recognize that by not talking about it, other companies aren't joining uh, kind of the movement to move forward. Well, so and I think very, this, I'm but, sorry, I totally interrupted you. Go ahead. No, I did. This is I, I see this as a very positive uh, direction that we're going in. Yeah, I do too. And I think that there's just this a different expectation these days that that uh, investors and consumers have of CEOs of companies. They're expecting them to address uh, many of these social issues and to not stay silent on them anymore. And that's new. That's that's something that is very, very different than where it was, say, you know, even 10 years ago, um, certainly 20 years ago. Well, and this translates again to let's say that you're in a uh, one of those shops that sells different brands of running shoes and you see two that look very much the same, pretty much the same price, but you have to identify what's that tipping point. And then mm -hmm. you think, oh, well, I read something about that company mm -hmm. They're doing really excellent work. Maybe I'll go with this company. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. so, you know, it's, it's those types of consumer decisions that will ultimately help to determine the ultimate direction of, uh, you know, whether or not companies take this seriously or not. Yeah. Matt, I think we're going to leave it there. This has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's early in the morning there. And before we go, there's one last question I like to ask all of my guests. If somebody wants to dive a little bit deeper and understand this whole issue uh, even more, what would you recommend that they either read or watch? Or is there a good podcast series? What, what would you direct them towards? Well, I mean, um, thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, you know, this podcast is an example of something that people can watch. Um, uh, in terms of the papers, Amplifying the S in ESG, Investor Myth Buster, we mentioned this. It's out. It's an easy read. It was written in such a way to not be an academic paper. It was meant to basically try to talk about this in a way that even a lay person could understand. Yes. And if you want to understand more about ESG, just, just Google it. ESG and you know manufacturing, ESG and fashion industry, ESG and whatever aspect that you want. There's so much good information that's available online. Uh, you, you can spend uh, hours and hours just going through things. There are videos, there are podcasts, there's papers. 
the um, documentation and the um, kind of information available has significantly grown in the last two years. Oh, yeah. And just about anything you need would be available out there in the real world. Yeah, oh, I agree. All right, Matt, thank you very much. It, this has been a real pleasure and I've uh, really appreciated having you as a guest. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Biz, The Business Integrity School. You can find us on YouTube, Google, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and rate us. And you can find us by searching The Biz. That's one word, T-H-E-B-I-S, which stands for The Business Integrity School. Tune in next time for more practical tips from a pro.